I'm Phil Corbett, and this is The Wind. This episode was written and recorded by Emily Pratt, and a heads up, it does include just a little strong language. This episode is called Baisho. The Portuguese word Baisho translates to both bass and low beneath. The register of notes played by a bass guitar is low, beneath the registers of guitar and voice. Human bodies, once expired, are hidden low, beneath elaborate gravestones and mausoleums. A neighborhood bar sits low, at the bottom of a hill on Rua Cardial Arco Verde, where my bandmate and travel companion Phil Corbett and I once sat across from one another. We shared some cheap beers, and we began to smile as we recognized one of the songs over the speakers as a Brazilian version of the song 16 Tons. The bar was named Bar de Baixo, a name that served a few separate meanings. It seemed, since there were black and white posters of Rolling Stones, Black Flag, and Charles Bradley everywhere, that the bass guitar may have played a part in the naming. Mostly it seemed that the name meant that the bar was at the bottom of a hill, but it was also true that it was above many other locations within the city. Sao Paulo is a city of rich texture, an urban hillscape that will occasionally surprise pedestrians with sweeping views, Steep staircases lead down to narrow pathways that lead back up staircases, up and down and up again, as limitless and as fluid as the waves of an ocean. We left the bar a couple of beers down, but feeling up. On our way back, we encountered the vast walled graveyard that we'd seen on our way down, the Necropole de São Paulo, a city within a city, rows of stone boxes, with human remains concealed low, beneath. We noticed that the gate was open, and we felt up to venturing within. The moon shining bright overhead, we made our way among the graves. Most of them had ornate crosses mounted at the head. There were biblical scenes being performed by statues. Many of them were overgrown with weeds, and a few were open so that we could stare down into them, into the abyss. Mostly I found just a few discarded soda bottles and cigarette boxes at the bottom. But occasionally, my mind drew human forms out of the darkness, a case of mild hallucination, my mind painting a portrait based on its expectations of what might be lying beneath. Once we'd seen enough, we turned around to leave, only to find the gate was closed. On our way in, we had seen, but didn't pay much mind to, a pickup truck, that was still running on the road leading into the graveyard. It must have been a maintenance guy there for a job. He locked the gate behind him, and all around us the necropolis walls were lined with razor wire. It was our first night in Sao Paulo, and for a minute it seemed as though we might have to spend it sleeping among the dead. We spotted a gap in the razor wire just above the gate, and we decided to climb up. The gate was twice our height, and the top was shaped like spears. We went up, over, higher, then descended lower to 
freedom. The suffix sub being the Latin for lower or beneath led me to draw a comparison between the bass in music and subversiveness in music. Well, I, you, you're welcome to make that comparison. I reached out to Joe Lolly, former bassist of the band Fugazi, for comment. Lolly's unique approach to bass brought the instrument out from the background and into a bold new frontier. I thought his sound would be perfect to compare the ideas of subversion and bass playing. It's not, it was, it's not like it was an intentional thing so much as that, you know, if that's just the way I saw it. You know, when you don't really know anything else, they're, they're, it, you're just trying to make the one thing that you do see happen. You know, you're just trying to do the one thing you know and the way that you hear the bass working. You just try and make it work that way. And you just keep insisting as you're writing songs with different people that it can work that way. And, you know, you're either kind of convincing them or you're not. Or, you know, they think the bass line's cool or they don't. Maybe it would help to form my own definition of the word subversive. Remember that show BattleBots where little nerds would invent robots to fight each other with? Well, there was this one, and it had a special weapon. It wasn't shaped like a knife or a hammer. It was shaped like a dustpan, and it was spring-loaded. And whenever it got underneath its opponent, it would just flip it upside down. What that little nerd understood is that enemies need strong foundations in order to deal damage. And when uprooted from those foundations, they lose their power. This is the way that I view the word subversive, to upturn, flip over, and ultimately defeat. Death from below. Joe Lawley's dustpan perspective was born in part from a lack of formal training. Yeah, look, I mean, looking back at what happened, because I didn't pick up a bass till I was 19, um, you know, which could be considered pretty late. And, but I had been listening to music pretty seriously for quite a long time because I saw a bunch of R&B bands, you know, when I was about 11 or 10, I saw, um, because they did afternoon shows. So I could, I could see like the OJs and the Spinners and, um, Isley Brothers. I saw the Jackson Five and, um, one and the last show was going to a show at night, which was in an arena, and it was Graham Central Station, which was the bass player from Slime and Family Stone, Larry Graham. And that was so late that, you know, I was then not allowed to, like, go see anything. But then I got into, like, junior high school and started listening to hard rock. So having been through, like, this, you know, basic... Um, R&B, like having that kind of a background and then going through like regular rock. I was then ready for something different and, and that's when I discovered punk rock going into high school. And, you know, it was really hearing um, a band like, bands like Joy Division and Public Image where the bass had such a specific 
repetitive role that was new in a way and yet totally derivative of different forms of black music, whether it was reggae or, or funk or soul music. It took a, a part of that and then brought something new out of it. And I could, you know, something in me totally related that to, you know, the way the bass works in James Brown or, you know, other things. And so, yeah, those things stuck out. And I didn't know any, you know, I didn't know how to apply that or how to get anyone else to work with that. But luckily, you know, my endeavors, you know, with some, with some people, bands that didn't really amount to anything, at least, you know, open that, like the exploration of that kind of playing. And then when I met Ian, you know, it just, it just, it, it was something that made sense to him. It wasn't some conceited effort to change music from below that brought Fugazi's signature sound to prominence. Lolly and Mackay simply played what came naturally to them. I found a similar attitude towards musical expression in Brazil. With Lolly having recently toured the country, I decided to ask him. Ever since the first time Fugazi went there, Brazil is just, you know, remarkable for the music that just seems to be in the air. Brazil in general, I mean, you just hear, you hear drumming in the street or whatever, and you follow it up, and it's like little, little kids playing super complex rhythms, you know. I just love so much music from there, and it's just such, you know, it's just such a rich environment, musically speaking, to be making music in. Discovering Brazilian underground music is a bit like discovering a sibling you didn't know you had. In the 60s, while we had the 13th floor elevators, Brazil had Os Muchanches. We had Neil Young and Joni Mitchell in the 70s, and they had Arthur Verakai and Caetano Veloso. We had Flower Power, they had Tropicalia. Between the US, the UK, and Brazil, punk scenes began to emerge with the Buzzcocks, the Clash, and the Dead Boys on one side, and Ira Innocentes in Cholera on the other. Sao Paulo's urban decay provided a ripe backdrop for the growing punk scene of Brazil. It was against this backdrop that Mercenarias were born. Mercenarias were pioneers in both Brazilian music history and punk at large, mutating the genre into an unsettling collage of guttural screams, dissonant razor-wire guitar, and the bass playing of Sandra Coutinho, whose bass cracks like a whip. Emily and myself met up with Sandra Coutinho on her balcony in Sao Paulo, just blocks from the necropolis. Our friends Marcelo Florentino and Luisa de Moro joined us and helped translate. It was like what I think now when I see the history of everything. (laughs) It's uh, you have a movement and then the next one is just the movement to go against the other movement. Because, uh, of course, that um, all the scene is changing every day. So the political things, social, economic things and, uh, and 
sometimes this art uh, don't express anymore what we are feeling. There's a video of Mercenarius performing live on TV. In watching it, it seems clear that Brazil had never seen anything like it on television. The host seems like he doesn't really know how to package this band to his audience. He's awkwardly announcing the band at times mid-song, while frontwoman Rosalia Munoz sways and slides around at her feet in a dizzy sort of groove. All while letting out screams that sound like glass bottles tossed into a wood chipper. Alongside her, the band plays a jarring, funky rhythm, shouting in unison like a gang of protesters. With my friends, the girls, we could do everything and uh, express the way we wanted. And I knew that if I was in, on stage, I was like an army, you know. You are the four or the three that they, we, we are together to do you know yeah. and um, fuck everybody that don't like it I wanted to find out if she had any perspective on this whole bass playing being subversive idea that I had or even if she thought that what mercenaries were trying to do was subversive the only thing that it's uh, my kind of being or the girls uh, we just uh, like to express ourselves so we it was an opportunity to to put out all that i want to do so if i want to cry or something i could do that because i felt very um, familiar so uh, the first uh, song we did is and so i do and the guitar and then he put and uh, so then the music is like this There are a lot of similarities between the styles of Coutinho and Lali when you listen to Mercenarius and Fugazi back-to-back. First of all, and most pertinent to our discussion, the bass players seem to use the treble side of their bass, which brings out the higher end of what is traditionally a low instrument. Second, since both were removed as artists from the initial wave of punk rock, they were more free to incorporate a wider range of influences in their style. Third, both picked up their instruments late in life and were thus forced to develop their own unique ways of approaching their instrument. And lastly, both took a chance on touring solo in a foreign country. Uh, It was a band here, uh, the Blech, from Germany. And in that time, my boyfriend was Thomas Papon, and he he was a Cicerone, I don't know how to say, the guy who guided this band. Oh, manager. Uh, ma- not manager. Oh. Uh, so there is a Goethe Institute here, and they called Thomas to to 
to be with them, to be a translator or things like this. Okay, okay. So I was in the show because I was in a very depressing time of my, and I was in the show and I saw the blech. It was really a poof, so you know, of energy. And I say, my God, I want that. And then I went to Germany. And Germany, I say, stop rock. I don't want to listen rock anymore in my life in that. So stop. Don't don't want know about rock scene. No. And then I start to experimental things with uh, so what kind of experimentals. Uh, I played a little bit in the Blash. Uh, and then I start solo performance with so uh, lots of effects and so I traveled alone uh, around Germany with one woman show the avant-garde ba bass player from Brazil so then I did a lot I did everything I want to do so all the very strange things if I listen today I say oh I was very courageous <laughs> to do that a few years into her stay in Germany the Berlin Wall came down. So when I came to Germany, I, uh, so my husband wanted to live in Berlin. Okay. But I was there. I didn't want to live in Berlin because I, I felt very depressive uh, things. Um, so I lived seven years in south of Germany. And it was a very small city, but so small. But there was a jazz club. So then I saw all kind of performance. So New Yorkers players or, you know, uh, uh, Mark Ribot. Uh, so very, because my husband uh, managed, they, they were a kind of musicians, very avant-garde. Uh, so, you know, this avant-garde. I know. <laughs> Uh, so then I, I, it was very nice. So I was far away of this kind of feeling. So after the wall, it's people more, more nice. So to to be with. When she returned to Brazil, Coutinho discovered a renewed passion for the music of Mercenarias that had taken root. After several pleas to reunite, she reached out to the band, and they performed a packed reunion show. The band is sleeping 14 years, and after 14 years, I came here. It's like this with the people singing. I say, oh, I don't understand. This is the underground of the internet. We went back to the necropolis, our last day, before a flight out of Sao Paulo. There was a shattered mirror leaning against a tree. We looked at our reflections, made violent in its jagged glass. As I walked along the dead alleyway, the white graves blushed with the setting sun. The wind blew through the trees and the sounds of cars speeding and honking and braking resonated off the walls in the distance. 
I was thinking about how underneath each of these stones is the one thing that we want to forget. Once, we humans didn't bury our dead. We just had to watch as they stared ahead blankly, as their skin sunk, as they bloated. How the beasts howled, and the carrion birds circled, and the maggots twirled and dropped and climbed back up and fell down and climbed right back up the bodies of our father, our sister, our son. At some point, humans must have decided to put them somewhere else, hide them underneath. We gained some peace of mind by innovating this idea of burial, but I think we lost something else. What exactly, I can't be sure. I was thinking all of this as I happened upon the open grave I had seen last time. The blood was all drained from the sunset, leaving me with a cold blue of twilight as my only light guiding me into the gaping hole below. And I saw the human shape again, huddled, hugging its knees in the corner of the grave among the discarded soda bottles and cigarette boxes. It was teeming as if covered in black ants. When we made eye contact, we instantly fell in love. When we spoke, we spoke in one voice. We said, Many dead below us. Many dead above. Many living above us. Many alive below. Out to them we go. Out to them we go.
The Wind is produced by me, Phil Corbett. And this episode was written and recorded by my good friend, Emily Pratt. This story was originally published on her website, howlsroad.com. If you like the show, subscribe, leave a review, and if you want to hear the bands cited in this episode, visit thewind.org. The music was a couple bass-heavy tunes from Fugazi and Mercenarius, and this song by mine and Emily's band, People With Bodies. That's the one and only Mark Nesbitt on bass. Thank you for being here, and keep listening. <laughs>